The time is now. Volume 4, Episode 81. This is Employment Law Now. I am Mike Schmidt, your host and the Vice Chair of Labor and Employment here at Cozen O'Connor. Thank you so much for joining us. Just uh, yesterday, which was November 5th, 2020, we put on a webinar here at Cozen with a terrific panel of my labor and employment colleagues, as well as the CEO of Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies, to uh, talk a little bit about uh, the election results status and predictions, as well as to discuss the impact that the eventual election results may have on key labor and employment issues, such as the FFCRA extension, a new relief bill by Congress, paid family leave, Department of Labor initiatives, uh, and other important labor and employment issues. If you missed our webinar yesterday, don't worry at all because I am rebroadcasting it in its entirety today in this podcast episode. So here goes, and I hope you find this useful. Hello, everybody. What a year this has been. What a week this has been. We at Cozen O'Connor had planned and planned this webinar to come two full days after the national election so that we could talk about the specific results of Election Day. Well, we had to do a lot of scrambling late last night and early this morning, as good lawyers do, and we pivoted in time to make significant changes to our webinar and the title of our webinar. So this is what we've changed. Welcome to our webinar. The results are not yet in. Now what? How will the 2020 election impact employers? Part one of a two-part series. I am Michael Schmidt, Vice Chair of Cozen O'Connor's Labor and Employment Department. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Before we begin, as usual, I have a few housekeeping items to review with you. All participants are in listen-only mode. This means that you can hear the speakers, but no one is able to hear you. If you have any technical issues, please send a chat message via the chat pod, and we will get right to it. There are several handouts available for download, and they can be found on the left-hand side of your screen titled Event Resources. That's where you will find the slides, SHRM certificate, and speaker bios. Due to the increase in number of webinars and participants, it has been taking a little longer than usual to get certificates sent out, so please allow time for the process to take place. And at the conclusion, please complete the evaluation. It's very helpful to us for future plannings. Lastly, if you have any questions at any time during the webinar, type your question by using the Q&A chat pod. We will try to answer as many questions as we can throughout the course of the webinar. And for those that we do not get to, we will reach out to you separately to answer your questions after today's webinar. Joining me today are my colleagues Aaron Holt, Jake Rubenstein, and Jennifer Taylor of Cozen O'Connor's Labor and Employment Department. We also have joining with us today Howard Schweitzer, 
who is the CEO of Cozen O'Connor's Public Strategies. Howard comes with a great deal of political experience and insight, having previously served in high-level political and executive appointments in the Bush, Clinton, and Obama administrations. Well, we've been spending a lot, if not all, of the past 72 hours watching the news, listening to the news, looking for tweets, anything to get us updated on what's going on. We are here on Thursday, November 5th, uh, and anticipate, hopefully soon, some final results so that we can start our planning either for a continued Trump administration or a new Biden administration. But we thought we would spend today's webinar trying to anticipate what may happen in either scenario. And so we just wanted to start with Howard and go through a few questions that we've been getting from a lot of our clients uh, and friends. So Howard, first, thanks for uh, joining us in today's webinar. Thanks for having me. Great to be with all of you. We are two days out from Election Day, and, and I think while people around the country were hoping to have a final resolution one way or the other by Tuesday, here we still are. So from a very 30,000-foot level, where do things currently stand, and why is this taking so long? So, Mike, it's not super surprising to me that we are where we are. This was election. This was an election unlike any other with the massive number of, of mail-in ballots and states figuring out how to fly the plane and bolt on the wings at the same time in terms of conducting an election amidst a global pandemic. Uh, you know, I think overall the election's gone pretty well. We, we, we're all following the news, so we all know that there are these handful of swing states, Nevada, Arizona, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, and Georgia, with um, undetermined results. I think we'll know by around this time tomorrow who the next president is going to be. I can tell you I'm talking to people inside both the Biden campaign and the Trump campaign and the Biden folks think they won, and the Trump folks think they lost. And I don't know any better way to size it up in terms of where they are than to listen to what the campaigns themselves are thinking, and that's most definitely what they're thinking. Well, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And so before we uh, get to some specific labor and employment issues, uh, that may be impacted. I did have a couple of uh, additional questions that I wanted to get your insight on. Um, eventually, we will have a winner, as you say, perhaps by tomorrow. Um, but the longer this goes on and the more we hear about lawsuits, people start to think back to about 20 years ago when uh, we had Bush versus Gore uh, in the Supreme Court. Are we going to see another uh, United States Supreme Court uh, cameo appearance this year? I think if it comes down to Pennsylvania, potentially, because in Pennsylvania there were some court rulings that um, the state is relying upon in terms of how they're processing and, and counting votes, as opposed to actions by the legislature that are determining how they're counting votes. Um, so I, I think if it comes down to Pennsylvania and it comes down to those extra votes, then, then yes. 
Absent that, I, I don't see it. I think that the elections are, I mean, there are tons of lawsuits being filed, but they're on, on minor issues and they're, they really have no, no substance to them. Um, and so I, I just, I don't see it heading there, Mike. Um, but, but if it does come down to Pennsylvania and the margin is razor thin, then yeah, there's a challengeable, um, there's some serious procedural issues in terms of the way that particular state has conducted the election. And certainly much of everybody's um, focus is understandably on the main ticket, the election of our president. But certainly for employers and for businesses, there's a good deal of, significant, of significance in the other congressional and state and local races as well. Isn't that right? Huge, huge. They're enormously significant. And look, I think every pundit expected a quote-unquote blue wave. And it didn't happen. Plain and simple. The Democrats, Biden, I think, will end up the, the victor. And that was certainly priority number one. But the Senate was a close second. And the Republicans are going to keep the Senate. The only hope at this point for the Democrats is that the um, runoffs, that there are two runoffs in Georgia. We don't even know that that will happen yet. We know there will be one. We don't know that there will be two. And that Democrats take the two runoffs in Georgia, and I, and I just don't see that happening. So I, I think the, the, the Democrats lost seats in the House, and they're not going to gain a majority in the Senate. Nancy Pelosi has to govern with a, a thinner majority in the House, and Mitch McConnell still has the reins in the United States Senate. It's really, it's a dramatic underperformance by the Democrats for this election to be this close. This is, this is not what they were expecting. And, and obviously, the, the existence of a Republican-led Senate is a major impediment to a progressive agenda in Washington from a, from a bunch of different perspectives. And, and Mike, we can get into that a little more. And down ballot as well in the states, uh, there was an expectation that the, the Democrats would, it would enhance their majorities uh, or overtake certain state legislative bodies, and it, it just didn't happen. So. In some ways, this I think this election was a, um, a referendum on, on moderation and the desire for moderation. I think when, when you net it all out, that'll be the legacy here. This is the first time that um, an incoming, that a new president will enter office if things hold the way they look like they're going to since 1988 without unified control of Congress. It will be the first time since 1884 that a Democrat will be entering the White House without unified Democratic control of Congress. So the, the country really opted for, for moderation here, which is, is probably you know, a pretty good thing because everybody can, can take home a little bit of something. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, it is fascinating, and certainly we're going to get into some specific issues uh, and also particularly uh, those that we're seeing 
a lot of initiatives on the state and local trends, but I think one of the uh, state and local areas. But one of the takeaways certainly is, as you just said, it's, it's not just about who's occupying the White House or uh, who's in Congress, but the state and local races are so significant because that's where we're seeing a lot of employment laws um, take hold these days. Yeah, absolutely. And look, we, we're going to continue to see progressivism, progressive policies, particularly at the local level. And then in, in the more progressive states, there's only one state in the entire country with a state legislature that is not of the same party. That's the state of Minnesota. And, and that will remain coming out of this. But, but you know, states are, are clearly on one side of the divide or, or the other. And, um, you know, in New, take New York, for example, Andrew Cuomo vetoed 190 bills that were passed by the legislature in the last session. So, so think about that. I mean, the, the progressive wave is still alive and well at, at, in some states and very much at the local level, Mike. So the last uh, overall question I wanted to get uh, some insight from you on before we get into a few specific issues. Do you think as a general matter, whether we have a continuing Trump administration or a new Biden administration, uh, do you think that employment-related policy and regulation will be significantly impacted very quickly? And by very quickly, I'm talking about still 2020, end of 2020, maybe when it comes to the FFCRA coronavirus-related legislation or beginning of 2021? Well, the fact that we're gonna, going to have continued divided government legislatively will definitely be a moderating influence on what comes out of Congress. But it's crystal clear that Biden will, will govern significantly to the, to the left of, of Trump. There's no doubt about that. I think we can expect to see an Obama-like agenda on labor and employment issues. He appealed significantly to, to the labor unions I and mean, they were a key constituency in the election and, and he owes them. On the other hand, um, McConnell, every Biden, every Senate confirmed Biden appointment has to go through the Senate. And people don't necessarily know this about the Senate, but under normal Senate rules, you don't see this for the major appointments, but any single United States Senator can put a hold on, on a nominee. And again, that doesn't happen for, you know, the marquee kind of cabinet level appointments, but it happens all day, every day on the, the, the lower level Senate confirmed appointments, kind of undersecretary, deputy secretary, assistant secretary kind of thing that, that make up the bulk of, of people that, that will serve in any administration. And, and my personnel is policy. The, the people that sit in those chairs, and I've been one of them, as you said earlier, working on, on both sides of the aisle, um, I, I've been one of them. The, the people that sit in those seats, they, have, they come into the administration with their issues and their things they want to accomplish and, and their way of looking at the world. And of course, you know, the, the White House gets the headlines, but the, the key to policy making, particularly from an administrative point of view, in a way that, that impacts 
labor and employee relations issues is who's in those seats. And Mitch McConnell and the Republicans have a say. And I think this will force Biden. He will still be a progressive president, a moderate progressive, or as, as one of my friends says, a progressive institutionalist. Um, and he'll have a progressive labor agenda. But that Republican Senate is going to be an enormous moderating influence on the Biden administration. Well, that's uh, very insightful, Howard. Appreciate it. And we're going to come back to you uh, with the others toward the end of the webinar uh, when I'll ask you for a little bit of uh, prognostication. But let's uh, get into uh, some specifics when it comes to labor and employment issues that may be impacted by the results of this election. We're starting to get some terrific questions in from the attendees. Please keep them coming. Uh, we will try to answer them throughout our presentation. Otherwise, we will get to you uh, after today's webinar. So I want to hand the baton over to Jennifer Taylor, my labor and employment colleague, uh, to talk about our first issue. Sure. Hi, everyone. Um, so the first issue that we are going to speak about or try to give our best educated guesses toward is what is the future of the Families First Coronavirus Response Act of the FFCRA? Obviously, that has been on the minds and and things that employers have been dealing with since it was first enacted at the beginning or be preliminary stages of the coronavirus pandemic. So I thought we would just take about 30 seconds to replay the timeline on how we got to where we are and then we can talk about how the, the FFCRA can play out under under each scenario in an eventual um, presidential victor, as Howard as Howard referred to it. So, as you'll recall, Congress passes in March uh, the FFCRA. It becomes effective April one of 2020. There are two primary divisions within the FFCRA, which is to say, there are both paid sick leave um, requirements for employees who are unable to work because of COVID or COVID-related symptoms or someone in their family is they, they are needed to care for. There is also the Emergency Family and Medical Leave Act, which is up to 10 weeks of paid expanded FMLA at two-thirds pay for, you know, similar when the children were out of school or COVID-related issues or the employee's own health condition similar to the underlying FMLA. We also know that it, New York State immediately filed a lawsuit in federal court challenging the Department of Labor's authority to, to issue some regulations that were to assist employers and all of us in understanding employer obligations under the FFCRA. We also know that um, the Southern District of New York issued a decision invalidating, and if you guys have been listening to our webinars, we've spoken in some detail about that, invalidating four components of the Department of Labor's regulations. And then finally in September of this year, the Department of Labor issues revised regulations in response to that decision um, that we'll get into in a few slides down the road that, you know, 
seem to address some points of the lawsuit, but not others. So that is where we stand at this time. And currently, the FFCRA is scheduled to sunset on December 31 of 2020. So what do we think will happen? Um, uh, the, as to the future of the FFCRA, um, if there is a second-term Trump administration, I've got to think, and, and everything that we're hearing is that an incumbent administration is likely to renew the FFCRA beyond the current December 31st deadline. One of the things that some folks have pointed to is that the Department of Health and Human Services announced a couple of weeks ago what they called a renewal of determination that a public health emergency exists. And basically what they said is, look, we're not, we're not done with this pandemic yet. Um, we are effective October 20th, 2020, going to extend all the way another 90 days. So that takes us into January um, of 2021 that there is, in fact, a public health emergency in the United States. It seems unlikely to us that a second-term Trump administration would go against the Department of Health and Human Services and after that pronouncement that a public health emergency exists, say, okay, well, but this, this um, paid and unpaid leave program nevertheless is going to exhaust itself on December 31st. So that's, while certainly not um, official or nor has the um, Trump camp announced any plans of that nature in a formal way. That's sort of where our thought process is at from that side of the aisle. Now, that leads us to what about the future of the FFCRA under a Biden administration? I think we get to the same answer. Um, I think we get to an extension of the legislation because going back to when it was initially passed, remember, the FFCRA had, you know, a, a large amount of bipartisan support. Um, the House of Representatives passed the FFCRA by a vote of 340 to 40. The Senate then approved that by a vote of 90 to 8. And so it is. it was hugely popular for both sides of the aisle to have this legislation in place. And I think that given everything else that a new administration will have to deal with in the coming days, um, you know, I, I, it is unlikely that they would take something on that is working and popular on both sides of the aisle as their first out of the gate issue. Um, one thing that I noticed in preparing for today's webinar that was of some interest to me was, is it working? Is the FFCRA working? Um, and while certainly no one knows the answer to that um, 100%, there a few weeks ago was a study issued by the Department of Policy Analysis and Management at Cornell and they have determined, at least that study has said, that the emergency paid sick leave available under the FFCRA has helped to flatten the curve 
in those states where employees were entitled to, eligible for, did in fact take um, FFCRA leave. And, and one of the things that the studies found was that, you know, over 400 fewer cases a day were reported in those states and those um, jurisdictions where the paid leave was available and, and employees were eligible for it. Now, we could spend another hour on, on the reporting of, of positive and negative um, COVID-19 cases, but at least for that particular study, it, it does seem to be working, at least that study found. So I don't think that either administration will go tackling the FFCRA at the very outset, which leaves us with the final issue for today's webinar on the FFCRA, which is, will there be continued litigation? Look, all I can do is throw my hands up on this one. Um, there, There is current litigation on the validity of the FFCRA. Um, as we said before, uh, the state of New York versus the, the Department of Labor, as it stands, the Department of Labor stood by its position that employers can deny leave to employees who would have been off work for reasons other than their qualifying condition and that employers can refuse intermittent leave under the FFCRA if it hampers business operations. That is what we know at this point. We don't know if there will be other challenges to the law. We, we do know that there is litigation in place right now um, in Florida, Pennsylvania, many, many states challenging individual employees saying they were either terminated or forced to take unpaid leave or other FFCRA violations, I would think at least that part would continue. So as far as the FFCRA, my best guess is that it's around for at least a little while longer. And I will turn over to my colleague Jake to talk about some other paid leave programs. Jen, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And following on Jen's presentation about the FFCRA, it might seem odd to ask, will there be a national paid leave program under either the second Trump administration or the Biden administration? Because as we've just heard from Jen, such a program already exists, and that is the FFCRA, which is likely to continue. However, it's also likely that there may be some other paid laws that go into effect under either administration. And to take a page out of Howard Schweitzer's book and talk about this from a macro view, think about the history of the uh, Family Medical Leave Act in the United States. It is now approaching its 28th birthday. It is a mature law that was passed with bipartisan support. But a key component of the Family Medical Leave Act is that the leave is unpaid. And in fact, looking back to 1993, when the Family Medical Leave Act was passed, it seems unlikely, if not impossible, that that law would have been passed had it provided for paid leave. Now, 28 years later, you can see a seismic shift in the body politic and a seismic shift in both parties in that under either administration, Trump or Biden administration, there is a possibility of paid sick leave or paid family leave, which demonstrates the extent to which things have changed. So, 
what could happen in either of these administrations? Will there be other pay leave laws? Well, Howard has told us that Joe Biden is likely to be the first one to get to 270, and that means he will call the shots. Whoever wins this election will determine the future of paid leave here. So the question is, will the Biden-Harris administration make a push for ever more progressive uh, paid leave laws at the federal level? Or will Donald Trump do what he said he would do in the February State of the Union address, which seems like it happened years ago, in which he said that he would like to see a bipartisan paid family leave law? Well, let's talk about Joe Biden's plans first. Joe Biden has told us that his administration will build back better here in the United States. And one of the proposals in the Joe Biden platform is for universal paid sick leave days. However, there are more questions than answers about what a Biden administration would attempt to accomplish in this area. In fact, I'll say this about both parties' platforms when it comes to paid leave laws. They're about a mile wide and about an inch deep, and there really aren't many details about what either President Biden or President Trump would do. President uh, Biden, should he become the president, says that he will push for universal paid sick days, but here are all of the questions that are unanswered. How many sick days will employees get? Who's eligible for them? How do you earn them? What are the rules about usage? How will this apply to small businesses? I represent clients that have tens of thousands of employees, and I represent clients that have as few as two employees. Would similar mandates be placed on employers of these different sizes when it comes to universal paid sick leave? Also, there's a question about interaction with state and local sick leave laws. Again, going back to something that Howard said, uh, where the action is when it comes to progressive employment laws is at the state and local level, and we'll talk about that shortly. But President Biden or future President Biden's platform uh, in favor of universal paid sick days doesn't say anything about interaction with local laws. What else might a Biden administration do in attempting to build back better? Well, the Biden platform calls for 12 weeks of paid leave for all workers for their own health condition or a family member's health condition. This is, in effect, paid family medical leave. And for those who supported the Family Medical Leave Act in 1993, this would be the completion of the mission of enacting a law that gives paid family leave to most American workers. Now, going back to my point about the action being at the state and local level, there are already a number of states that have mandated uh, paid sick leave or paid family leave. And in fact, in my home state of Colorado, we just on Tuesday passed a, uh, a referendum that requires the state to create a program for paid family leave. The the lead up to that was circuitous in that it was originally a bill in the legislature that didn't garner enough support, and so its supporters took it to the voters. And here in Colorado, we have a particular brand of participatory democracy, and the voters approved it. 
So what about a Trump administration? Uh, there's no guarantee that Joe Biden will win this election. It is still very much in doubt. Would a Trump administration, given its conservative base and given what is seen as uh, non-worker-friendly platforms, would the Trump administration attempt to pass uh, paid family leave? Well, in this year's State of the Union address, uh, Donald Trump said that he wanted to put together a bipartisan plan for paid family leave. What might that look like? Well, to understand what paid family leave under a second Trump term might look like, we have to look at the Federal Employee Paid Leave Act, which went into effect in October of this year. It applies only to federal workers, and it gives up to 12 weeks of paid time off for the birth, adoption, or fostering of a new child. So it's much more limited than family medical leave because it doesn't cover a person's own health condition or a family member's condition, but it's something. So in the State of the Union address, President Trump said he hoped that this law for federal employees would be a model for the future. And in fact, uh, there, he has co-sponsorship from a Democrat in Arizona. But as I said, there's a number of exceptions and asterisks. Uh, this is leave only for the birth or adoption or fostering of a child. The scheme for payment of this paid leave is odd in that employees will be told under this law to uh, borrow from their future selves by forfeiting future child tax credits to pay themselves for their new baby leave. And as I said, it does not provide leave for a person's own illness or a family member's illness. And critically, of critical importance, um, as proposed, it would not provide the guaranteed job protection that the family medical leave provides. So what's happening out in the states? Um, I think Howard is absolutely right that uh, strongly progressive paid leave at the federal level, even if it's pushed hard by the Biden administration, will run into the power of Mitch McConnell and Republicans in the Senate. So I believe that what we will continue to see is enactment of paid leave laws at the state and local level because the divided federal government will prevent passage of something comprehensive and progressive at the national level. We've already got about 14 states and multiple localities that have paid leave laws. And as I said, here in Colorado, we've already had paid sick leave, and now we have added paid family leave in an exercise of participatory democracy. So that's what the landscape looks like in terms of the possibility of a national paid leave law or paid sick leave law under either a Trump or Biden administration. And uh, unless there are any questions, I will hand the presentation off to my Houston-based colleague, Aaron Holt, who will talk about uh, the future of the Department of Labor. Thank you, Jake. Before we uh, get to some Department of Labor thoughts, um, did have some questions coming in. Uh, first one, really for both, Jake, for both you and Jen, um, to try to distinguish between what may be a technical or a legal requirement uh, in leave-related statutes, including the FFCRA, are you both seeing employers still proceeding um, by being flexible when it comes to leave and accommodation requests? In other words, given the psychology of what's still happening in the world today, are employers uh, not just relying on technical requirements of these statutes, 
but still enacting policies and proceeding with job actions with a measure of flexibility? So, and what's been your experience in that area? Yeah, yeah, it, yes, with, without question. And, and Mike, I think you bring up a, a good point of the psychology of the situation. I mean, if you, if you, as us lawyers, if you go back to the fundamentals of the FMLA upon which the FFCRA is based, it does say in the regulations, employers can always choose to be more generous or provide more generous benefits um, than the FMLA and the FFCRA technically require. That is in a non-pandemic situation. So in a pandemic situation like this, and in the, the context of all of the shift to working remotely and, and, and trying to restaff and keep businesses open and keep employees feeling safe and, and, and ready to come to work and, and productive, I've seen several employ I mean, even, even employers that are in the most regulated of industries, I have seen loosen their restrictions on leave and accommodation just for that reason, Mike, what you said, which is which is to deal with the unique circumstances in which they find themselves in 2020. And, and certainly you want to be careful still um, while you're being flexible and presumably trying to do the right thing. You still want to make sure that your decisions and your actions are being implemented consistently across the board as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Definitely so true. Howard, My experience is similar to Jen's. Great. Thank you. Um, Howard, I want to come back to you quickly um, just to touch on a point that uh, Jen had made talking about the FFCRA. Putting aside whether we may have uh, an amendment or an extension to the FFCRA, people are asking about a second relief bill or, or a significant new relief bill coming out of Congress. What are the chances that a new relief bill uh, gets passed before January's inauguration day, and will that depend on who is in the White House? So I think they're pretty good. Assuming that we're going to have divided government come January 20th of 2021, uh, there's no reason to wait because everybody's going to have to um, have a say. And, you know, I think, I think the, the Democrats overplayed their hand a little bit waiting, um, assuming they'd run the table and um, in, a, in a, you know, with a blue, in a blue wave scenario um, that didn't happen. And McConnell has already come out, Mitch McConnell has already come out and, and said we should do a new package in the lame duck. Um, Trump was always fine doing a new package, and Pelosi wants a new package. The question is at, at what dollar amount. And as long as Mitch McConnell is still going to be Senate Majority Leader in January, it, it has to go through him anyway, and the Democrats are not going to be able to to force his hand in terms of the, of the size of the package. So I think they will do something uh, before the end of the year. I think it's a, it's a way for Trump to be able to say he did something good. Let, let's assume the current um, expectations hold um, and, and he loses. I think it's a way for him to do something big. He likes doing big things. It's, 
the way for him to do something big. Um, and, you know, I, I think that but the Democrats are going to have to compromise on, on the dollar amount because McConnell wanted to do a smaller package. So I see something in the high hundreds of billions of dollars, but not a multi-trillion dollar package before the end of the year. Great. Thank you, Howard. Uh, let's move on to uh, Aaron Holt and a discussion about the Department of Labor. Great. Thanks, Mike. Um, so what are the issues that are currently affecting workers as far as wages? What are some regulatory issues that um, might impact the American workplace under either a Biden or Trump administration? That's really the scope of the Department of Labor and one of the things I want to talk about. Uh, let's start with wages. The current minimum wage is 725 and has been that way since 2009. Both potential presidential candidates have come out in the run-up to the election and talked about what they would do on this. Joe Biden has taken a more firm stance that he would immediately raise it to 15 dollars an hour. Trump has been a little bit more um, muted. He'd said he'd consider $15 an hour, but really would prefer to leave it up to the states. Uh, for example, Florida in this election cycle just recently passed a constitutional amendment raising their minimum wage to $10 an hour, effective September 30th, 2021, and then annual increases of $1 per hour until that minimum wage reaches $15 in 2026. So both have... Um, come out and said what they would do on the federal minimum wage. Uh, but what about uh, the minimum salary threshold? And to get into this discussion, we need a little bit of historical context. Uh, when you classify a salary worker as exempt, either as administrative, professional, or some type of exemption under the Fair Labor Standards Act, employers are required to pay them a certain minimum salary uh, in conjunction with that exemption. Uh, from 2004 until 2017, that was about $455 a week. In 2016, the outgoing Obama administration proposed raising that to $913 a week. When Trump came into office, uh, he blocked that, but still increased the minimum salary threshold to $684 a week. Now, considering that Joe Biden was Obama's vice president, it's likely that he might try to reenact Obama's proposed rule, which also included an automatic increase to that minimum salary threshold every three years. Now, because Trump has already uh, addressed the minimum salary threshold, I think it's less likely that he might go back and revisit that. It would be more likely in my mind that he would um, do something on the minimum wage, if at all. Next, let's talk about independent contractors. In September, the Department of Labor announced a proposed rule that would, in essence, make it easier to classify workers as independent contractors. There was a 30-day public comment period, which just closed on October 26th. And what this changes is the old independent contractor rule focused on an employer's possible control over the manner and method of work to determine whether or not someone is an employee or an independent contractor. Um, the new rule focuses on the actual employer practices, what is actually happening between the employer and the potential worker, uh, looking at the economic reality of their current situation. And the new rule proposed by the Trump administration establishes 
two core factors for this determination. One, the nature and degree of the worker's control over the work, and two, the worker's opportunity for profit or loss based on their own initiative or investment. There are also three guidepost factors that go along with this, such as the amount of skill required for the work, whether or not this is a permanent working relationship, and whether or not the work is part of an integrated unit of production. Now, keep in mind, this classification only applies to the Fair Labor Standards Act, so your state law might be different. It might establish a different type of uh, minimum threshold. For example, California itself just uh, approved a measure to classify app-based drivers as independent contractors. And this rule change is really going to impact gig economic workers, such as drivers for Uber or Lyft, things like that. If an Biden administration uh, comes into power, I would expect that this rule gets rolled back and doesn't actually take effect. Um, If Trump administration continues on, then I would expect this to be the new uh, law of the land as far as independent contractors go. There's also some executive orders that merit um, mentioning. You might have heard about uh, the top one here in the news, uh, Trump's executive order that um, prohibited certain types of federal workplace diversity training. A Biden administration has already come out and said that they would modify that to require that type of training. There are also two, you see the next two bullet points, two Obama executive orders that uh, implemented some changes to the workplace that were blocked by Trump. The first one has to do with um, requiring federal contractors to publicly disclose any violations of wage, health, safety, or labor laws on certain contracts, and they were required to take those into account when determining who to award those contracts. And then the second one that that Trump blocked was uh, an OSHA regulatory requirement, which um, would allow employers to be cited for failure to accurately record OSHA recordable injuries within the time period that they were required to do so. Trump blocked both of those. If a Biden administration comes in, I would expect both of those executive orders that were initially proposed while he was vice president to be enacted. Lastly, the federal enforcement budget um, bears some mentioning here as far as our two possible outcomes with the presidential election. Trump's proposed budget for for 2021 has a 10.5% cut to the Department of Labor and also eliminates some OSHA training grants supporting an employee-employer education uh, on workplace hazards and safeties. I would expect that the Department of Labor's budget, especially as it relates to enforcement, would be greatly increased under a Biden administration as compared to Trump. And we see that play out a little little bit with OSHA. If you look at OSHA's um, pandemic response to COVID-19, their guidance has largely adopted the guidance of the CDC. It's non-binding. During the time that we've been living in this pandemic, um, OSHA has received approximately 9,000 employee complaints related to COVID-19. It's opened investigations into approximately 200 of those. Its first citation uh, for COVID-related issue was in mid-July of this year. Uh, Since October 10th, it's issued approximately 85 citations. So I would expect all of those numbers to greatly increase as far as investigation and enforcement under a Biden administration. And we've started to see uh, in the last month, a number of lawsuits be filed against uh, OSHA, uh, one of which is um, brought on behalf of uh, healthcare workers, which is alleging that 192,000 of them have been infected by COVID, 771 of them have died, um, and they're essentially asking OSHA to take a, a more firm stance in response uh, to the COVID pandemic. Uh, under the Trump administration and 
which would continue under a future Trump administration. The pandemic safety will probably continue to be left up to the states. We would probably stay the course uh, in that regard. And in response to that, some states have actually formed um, regional coalitions. There's the Western States Pact, for example, uh, that covers Oregon, Washington, and California. Um, and I would expect these regional coalitions um, to have some type of input uh, as we approach a vaccine, as it, re as it relates to uh, approval and distribution of the vaccine. Conversely, on the Biden side, um, I, I in a Biden administration, I would expect more aggressive enforcement um, on the reporting requirements. For example, mandatory reporting of a positive COVID test um, that was reported to an employer, maybe a national mask mandate, and probably more strict um, enforcement penalties uh, for noncompliance. Lastly, uh, I want to talk about the current state of uh, marijuana law in this country. Uh, in the most recent election, there were four states that approved recreational marijuana in New Jersey, South Dakota, Montana, and Arizona. Right now, on the federal level, marijuana is classified as a Schedule I drug. It's in the same vein as heroin, LSD, and ecstasy. Um, that prevents uh, anyone from being able to research its medicinal uses, but compared to the actual reality of, of our patchwork current patchwork of, of laws around the country, um, there's uh, a big push uh, to reclassify that in some way. And there are two options here uh, as far as what would possibly happen in the next administration, um, whether it be Biden or um, Trump. I think uh, I'll get to the predictions in a second, but the two options are to one, reclassify it as a Schedule II drug or to decriminalize it. What does that mean? Reclassifying it as a Schedule II drug would put it on the same level as OxyContin, Adderall, and Hydrocodone. It would be subject to FDA approval. So companies who make certain claims as far as health benefits would be required to conduct clinical trials to support their, their claims. It would still require a doctor's prescription, uh, just like um, Adderall or Hydrocodone, for example. And there would still be criminal penalties associated with possession uh, because it still required a doctor's prescription. Um, decriminalization uh, is, uh, a, it can go two different ways. You can replace the criminal penalties with civil sanctions for possession without a license, or you just remove it from the federal schedule altogether. On Biden's platform currently, um, he recommends reclassifying it as a Schedule II drug. But his vice presidential running mate, Kamala Harris, has supported outright decriminalization. And in Biden's most recent October 16th town hall, he said, quote, we should decriminalize marijuana. Whether or not that's a gaffe or a change in position is yet to be seen. Um, but an employer, regardless of whether or not it's Biden or Trump, would still probably have the ability to regulate use and impairment in the workplace, similar to the current standards we have in place for alcohol or prescription drugs that might impair uh, cognitive function. As far as the Trump administration, I would expect there to be some type of movement uh, in one way or the other, just because the public support um, is for this. There's a, a lot of regulatory dollars at stake, and there's also an awful lot of states who have approved it in some form and fashion. So with that, I will turn it over to Mike to talk about our predictions. Thank you very much. And before we get to predictions, um, I think we need to talk about the lack of predictability um, that we seem to be having year after year and, and administration after administration. So I want to throw out to our group here the following question. Do you agree or disagree with the following statement? It is extremely difficult, but not impossible, for employers to understand how to act when it comes to employees when the rules and the guidance of most government agencies 
seemingly go back and forth depending on the political winds. Uh, Jen, I start with you with a thought on that. Um, I think it, yes, agreed. And I think it goes back to what you said earlier about consistency. The hallmark, as we have instructed all of our clients, I'm sure, over the past however many years we've been practicing, is consistency. And so it is very difficult, yes, if not impossible, um, when the rules change and the guidance changes per administration to develop any historical concept of consistency or this is how we do things or this is what our policy has been for a significant period of time. So, yes, I do think it's difficult. Aaron, any thoughts on that? Yeah, when um, whenever I talk to my clients about things like this, all they want to know is what are the rules of the road so that they can run their business. And you start to see this um, be more problematic with cases like the NLRB, which is uh, appointed by the president and it has shifted greatly over time with the um, the political winds. And when you have that kind of seesaw uh, with your regulatory framework, it makes it difficult to run a business. So uh, what I hear is a lot of frustration from my clients with that regard, and they would um, – uh, they would just like to see whatever the rules are with some clarity and some consistency in the long term, make it easier for them to actually run their business. So I would I would say absolutely yes. Well, we're two for two on agreements. Jake, what's uh, what's your take on that? Let's make it three for three. I agree as well. And this is particularly evident at the National Labor Relations Board. I practice a lot in the area of traditional labor law. And what I've seen with the National Labor Relations Board under the Obama administration and under the Trump administration is that there's always been a pendulum there, and it's always swung, but it's swinging faster, and it's swinging farther than it has in the past. No question about that. It uh, it does make things difficult, though, as I said, not impossible. Howard, what what are you telling people, clients, and otherwise uh, when they ask you uh, how they're supposed to conform their behavior to rules that seemingly change depending on the political administration? Well, Mike, it, it is hard. What I'm telling people first and foremost is you have to engage. Um, you know, our my business is a lobbying business, and by definition, it's, it's about engagement. It's about having a seat at the table. And regardless of party, you, ha you have to talk to the folks that represent you in, in Congress and, and, and in the administration and, and tell them how this is impacting your business uh, in, a, in a real way. And, and sure, they come in with, philosophies and, and approaches. And, and obviously, a Biden administration is going to be more aggressive on um, labor issues pro, from a pro-labor perspective than a, than a Trump administration is. But you can still talk to them. And you can still have a voice. And you can still go to your members of Congress uh, to be a moderating to be a moderating influence. And, and yeah, the flip-flopping up at the federal level is tough. I actually think what we talked about earlier at the local level, you know, the, for multi-jurisdictional employers, having to navigate through the, the, the maze of restrictions and, and different approaches at the state and local level is, I think, even more challenging than the flip-flopping at the federal level. 
No question. Um, and, you know, speaking about at least one policy or initiative that we've been hearing a lot, and there are a lot of views on both sides of the aisle about, uh, it's immigration. Uh, and we got a, a, a good question from one of our attendees, and I want to ask you, Howard, um, how would you expect uh, immigration laws, immigration priorities in the country to change if they will change uh, if uh, Joe Biden becomes president? Well, I think he is going to be clearly more friendly to um, immigrants than than the Trump administration has been. Um, and, and a lot of that is enforcement um, type issues. And, and so, I, you know, I think we'll see some of that. It, you know, I, I think one of the, one of the things that's going to happen, and this kind of gets to a, a prediction is, look, obviously McConnell is going to be a check and balance on a, on a Biden administration and the Democratic House. But Mitch McConnell, Nancy Pelosi, and Joe Biden have all been in Congress for a bazillion years. And they all know one another. They've all worked together. And they all know how to do deals. And, and there are going to be areas, and I'm not necessarily predicting that immigration will be one, but there are going to be areas where agreement is going to break out, I predict. And they're actually going to be able to work together. It'll be the normal political you know, back and forth, and you'll see some obstructionism and jockeying, but, but these are people who are going to be able to work together. I think immigration is obviously a hot-button issue, but the Senate several years back tried to do an immigration bill. And it didn't go anywhere, but I think maybe maybe some peace will break out, and maybe that's an issue where they can come together and fix the broken immigration system. That's uh, that's that's great. We will wait to see what happens uh, in that area too. Let's continue around the horn uh, with a very brief prediction or takeaway from the rest of our panel, starting with Jennifer Taylor. Uh, what is your takeaway when it comes to uh, the election results and the potential impact on labor and employment law? So my takeaway is happening relatively soon. I think, you know, separate and apart from the election, although related there too, there is a Supreme Court oral argument on a case next week on Tuesday the 10th that involves particular mandates of the Affordable Care Act and whether the the entirety of the Affordable Care Act can stand without the provisions that are at issue. And I think that has far-reaching ramifications for, you know, small businesses, for the self-employed, for the employees of small businesses, for the employees of large businesses. So I am, I am certainly tuned into and will be following um, – the oral argument and the decision eventually from the Supreme Court on California versus Texas or Texas versus the United States if those two cases have now been consolidated. Perfect. Thank you. Jake, our colleague Jake Rubenstein, 
a takeaway prediction from you? My prediction is that regardless of who prevails in the presidential election, the road to paid family leave or paid sick leave at the federal level will be slow and uncertain, and employers should look to states and localities as the area where laws will continue to move forward in this area. That's terrific. Uh, Aaron Holt, what is your takeaway or prognostication? Well, I think we're all looking for some certainty in these times, so I'm going to go with uh, what I think is the most likely to happen under either administration, and that's going to be a change to the current uh, marijuana law classifying as a, as a Schedule One drug. The weight of public opinion, the multi-billion dollar potential industry, um, and the current patchwork of legalization we have around the country, I think makes a lot of sense, either from a Trump argument for states' rights or from a Biden administration. Uh, I think in either scenario, you're going to see something like that happen. Perfect. That was Jennifer Taylor, Jake Rubenstein, and Aaron Holt of our Labor and Employment Department. Uh, Howard, we uh, end where we started, and that is with you, uh, our CEO of Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies. What is one last uh, prediction or takeaway uh, from what's going on with the election that you can leave our attendees with? Well, Mike, it's, it's, it's what I was just saying, that um, you know, regardless of how, how this thing comes down, you know, absent a blue wave, um, you know, unless there's some miracle and, and the Democrats take both Georgia's Senate races and in the January 5th runoff, I, I think we get some consistency from a policy point of view, maybe not so much on labor issues, but from a, um, it, it, speaking more on a macro level, there's some consistency between administrations. I think the rhetoric will be dialed way down because Trump will govern, I mean, Biden will govern much differently than Trump. He won't be tweeting every 16 seconds, but um, from a policy point of view, and I think it will be stabilizing the fact that they won't be able to tear up the 2017 tax bill, the fact that um, you know, earth-shattering legislation won't be able to make its way through Congress, that McConnell will have a check and balance. I think it will lead to, to some moderation and give the country a chance to catch its breath. And maybe Washington won't change as much as it would have otherwise. Well, that was a terrific and real substantive part one, only part one of our part, uh, two-part series addressing the impact of the 2020 election on labor and employment issues. Uh, our part two will be two weeks from today, Thursday, November 20th, 2020. Hopefully, we will have the election results by then. But thank you in the meantime to all of you for, as always, spending a chunk of your day with us uh, joining us today for our webinar, The Results Are In, Not Yet In, What Now? Remember that the evaluation will appear at the conclusion of this webinar, so please take a moment to complete it and submit it. Uh, we really rely on those evaluations for future webinar planning. Also, remember to download the appropriate form for your self-reporting purposes. 
And finally, if you submitted questions via Q&A chat and it was not answered through this webinar, we will reach out to you offline separately. So on behalf of Aaron, Jake, Jennifer, and Howard, I am Michael Schmidt of Cozen O'Connor. Thank you so much for joining us again, and we hope you, your family, and your colleagues all stay safe and healthy. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and until the next time, I hope all of your labor is productive.